0: This is The Guardian.
1: Today, Oscar Pistorius walks free, 11 years after killing Riva Steenkamp. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. A warning before we start – this episode does include discussion of abuse and violence against women. The murder of Riva Steenkamp in 2013 shocked and horrified the world. She was killed by Oscar Pistorius, the so-called Blade Runner, a South African national hero, the most famous Paralympic sprinter in history. He shot her multiple times in the bathroom of his Pretoria home in the early hours of Valentine's Day. they have been dating for three months. After serving nine years in prison, Pistorius has now been released on parole.
0: In the last hour, former Paralympian Oscar Pistorius has been released from prison on parole this morning, nearly 11 years after murdering his girlfriend, Reva Steenkamp.
1: But what does the case reveal about fame, race, and the endemic violence against women in South Africa. And what's changed? From The Guardian, I'm Nasheen Iqbal. Today in Focus, a decade on from the murder of Reva Steenkamp. Tim Rowan, you're a journalist and host of the podcast False Idol that explored the Oscar Pistorius murder case at length. I'd like to start with understanding more about the woman he killed. Can you tell me about Reva Steenkamp?
2: Reva grew up in South Africa, living on farms. She was described to me as a strong, confident country girl. She was the only child of Barry and June Steenkamp, and Barry was a horse trainer. So Reva grew up around horses, riding horses, and she also was great at school. She studied law at university, graduated with good grades. But after school, instead of becoming a lawyer, she kind of set that aside and pursued a career in modeling. And she had modeled growing up, and she had won a big modeling competition in South Africa. So after school, she decided to move to Johannesburg and pursue modeling full-time. And it was kind of a dream of hers to do that.
1: What do we know about the kind of person she was? What was she like?
2: I spoke to a colleague of hers at the modeling agency that she worked at. And Charlene told me that Reva would bring in baked goods to the office. At certain points, she would even sit down and answer emails if they needed extra help. She was an empathetic, kind-hearted, caring person, and that influenced all aspects of her life.
1: So she moved to Johannesburg to become a model. How successful was she?
2: She was having success. Uh, I was told that she actually booked more work because she was such a pleasure to deal with, because she was such a nice person. She booked jobs for magazines, print advertising, commercials, and these are for big companies like Toyota, KFC.
0: We had the Wrangler launch, uh, relaunch of their brand. Uh, I was invited by Tulani. Hi, Tools.
2: <laughs> she appeared on the cover and of FHM, South Africa, a men's magazine. But she got her big break when she was cast on a reality show called Tropica Island. <laughs> and this reality show was sort of like a Survivor, but Reva. with celebrities.
0: My name is Riva. Reva and I'm a model, and we're in Jamaica this year. Be jealous, you can be jealous. <laughs> yes, you can win a million. But
2: on that million. show, people on the show called Riva Mama Bear, because she would invariably take care of everyone. And so that was just the kind of person she was. It's
0: just your journey in life, but the way that you go out and you make your exit is so important. It's, you either made an impact in a positive way or a negative way, but just
3: maintain integrity and maintain class, and... Just always be true to yourself. And I'm going to miss you all so much. And I love you very,
2: very much. And as her profile grew, Riva started using her platform to speak out about social issues she cared about. And one in particular she started speaking out against is gender-based violence. It was my understanding that she'd already been through abusive relationship. And I think she was drawing on those experiences in talking about it, right? I think that's what made her so passionate about the issue. She was speaking from a place of experience and understanding.
1: And what did that activism, that campaigning, what did that look like?
2: From what I understand, it was mostly posting on social media, using her social media audience to speak out about these issues. There was a young woman who was brutally murdered around this time. Her name was Anine Boyson.
3: It's a
0: crisis in our communities. It's a crisis that a 17-year-old girl is killed, but it's an equal crisis that those who got arrested is 21 years old, 22 years old. They're all our children.
2: And Reva spoke out about Anine Boyson's death. And then in February, actually on Valentine's Day 2013, Reva was scheduled to give a talk at a school.
1: And this was the same day she was killed.
2: Yeah. And Kim Martin, Reva's cousin, gave me a copy of the speech that Reva had written. And it was all about self-empowerment, standing up for yourself and having confidence in yourself. Themes that would echo around that same topic of gender-based violence.
1: Well, when did she first meet Oscar Pistorius and how famous would he have been at the time?
2: So Reva met Oscar Pistorius around late 2012 and... As I said, Reva had been on this reality show and her profile was starting to grow and she was becoming more of a celebrity in her own right. And by all accounts, she met Oscar Pistorius at an event at a racetrack. And at that point, Oscar Pistorius was one of the most famous people in South Africa. He was a sporting hero. He was a Paralympian who had won six gold medals at the Paralympic Games. He was this big sporting figure. And so after they met that day at the racetrack, Pistorius actually invited Riva to be his date at the annual South African Sports Awards. And so they appeared together on the red carpet at this awards ceremony, and the paparazzi had a field day.
0: Hi, <laughs> I'm Oscar's date tonight. Um, he needed a date to the last minute, so it's like, Riva, just throw your stuff together and come and be my date. So Oscar needed a date. It's funny, hey? I don't know how that worked out. <laughs>
2: And that was kind of their first time coming out together.
1: So they were very much the it couple of the moment. I mean, how was their relationship presented in the public eye?
2: Well, in the public eye, everything looked great. Everything looked rosy. Reva would occasionally post about Oscar on her social media, and they'd go to these events together, and they'd be photographed looking happy with big smiles. But behind closed doors, there were issues. From what I understand... Pistorius had pursued Riva rather aggressively. He wanted to see her all the time. He'd get impatient if she didn't text him back right away. At one point, Riva booked a job that would involve her kissing a man. And she worried about telling Pistorius because she was afraid of how he'd react. So Pistorius displayed this jealous, possessive behavior towards Riva. And this was something he'd done in the past. He had been jealous and possessive with previous girlfriends. He had one ex-girlfriend named Samantha Taylor, and I spoke to Samantha's mother, Trish Taylor, and Trish told me that he did the same thing with her. He always wanted to know where she was, who she was with. If he didn't believe her, he'd call her family. He'd ask her to Skype with him to make sure she was at home. Wow. I should note, Pistorius also had a history of anger and aggression. He drove his cars at high speeds. He once allegedly flashed a gun at the operator of a pleasure boat who refused to sell him alcohol. He once allegedly fired a gun through the sunroof of a moving car. And he would get in fights with his girlfriends too. There's one story that Trish Taylor told me that I'll never forget. One night at Pistorius's house, he had friends over and they were drinking. And at one point in the evening, Pistorius slipped and fell and chipped his tooth. And he blamed Samantha Mm. for the chipped tooth And this led to a fight and him shouting at her. And at one point, as Trish told me, Samantha was so afraid, she felt the need that she had to hide his gun. Oh, wow. And when he finally went to sleep, Trish said that Samantha finally felt relief. So there's a lot of issues here with the jealous and possessive behavior mixed with anger and aggression and an affinity for guns. You know, Pistorius slept with a gun near his bed, frequented a gun range. And so it was really uh, a scary combination.
0: Breaking news out of South Africa. The double amputee sprinter Oscar Pistorius, who captured so many hearts at the London Olympics,
1: has been charged with murdering his model girlfriend. She was shot four times with his gun. Tim, can you take me back to February 14th, 2014? What were the immediate facts that emerged from that night?
2: By all accounts, Pistorius and Riva had a quiet night at home. They had dinner, then went up to the bedroom. Riva did yoga, and Pistorius chatted with his cousin on the phone. And Pistorius says he went to sleep sometime around 9, 10 p.m. that night. And I should say here, obviously, all we have is Pistorius' account. Riva isn't around to tell us what happened next. And then sometime around 3 a.m., Pistorius' neighbor, Dr. Johann Stipp, wakes up to what sounded like gunshots and the sound of screaming. And he rushes over to Pistorius' house and he finds Riva on the floor, gravely wounded. And immediately in that moment, Pistorius tells Dr. Stipp that he had mistaken Riva for a burglar and that he had shot her. And all the while this is happening, Pistorius is crying hysterically.
3: Do you understand the charges, Mr. Pistorius?
2: I do. I do, my lady.
3: How do you plead? Not guilty, my lady.
2: On trial for murdering his girlfriend, Oscar Pistorius facing a courtroom and the watching world. A year later,
1: in 2014, his trial began at the Pretoria High Court. Tim, it was televised and broadcast around the world.
0: How big was
1: this story globally?
2: It was a massive, massive story. I mean, Pistorius crossed over and wasn't just a paralympic star he was a global star he was on billboards he had sponsorships and in south africa in particular he was considered a hero and now suddenly he had killed his girlfriend and was on trial for murder media outlets from around the world covered this trial and cameras were also allowed inside the courtroom and they would have recap shows after court each day like it was a sporting event
3: the 37th day of Oscar Pistorius' trial in the North Gauteng High Court has adjourned. Now, Professor Wayne Derman was on the stand. All the way.
2: reporting at the time, though, I think a lot of people were wrapped up in Pistorius and his star power and his fall from grace. And Riva seemed to be overlooked and sort of lost in the shuffle.
1: Well, what case did Pistorius and his legal defense team make?
2: So Pistorius and his defense team claimed that this had been one big tragic mistake during the trial Pistorius took the stand and gave his version of events this is all according to him I walked behind Reva where she came in the room and I closed the bedroom door and I locked the bedroom door as I do every night Uh, he said that he woke up that night remember he said he went to bed around 9 10 p.m and he said that at some point in the middle of the night he woke up and heard a noise coming from the bathroom and he said it sounded like a window sliding open in the bathroom. And in that moment, he thought there was someone breaking into his house. And so Pistorius grabs his gun and goes to confront this intruder himself. He doesn't call for the police. He doesn't check to make sure Riva is okay. He just grabs his gun and starts walking towards the bathroom. And he's shouting for this burglar to get out of his house. And he says he's shouting for Riva to phone the police. Now, as all this is happening, as Pistorius is walking toward the bathroom, he's walking without his prosthetic legs. And that's a key detail because Pistorius later said that that made him feel more vulnerable in that moment. And so at one point, Pistorius hears a door inside the bathroom slam shut. And so Pistorius reaches the entrance to the bathroom and sees the toilet door is shut. And at one point, he hears a noise from inside the toilet. And in that moment, he fires four shots through the toilet door. His explanation was he said he thought the person inside the toilet was going to come out and attack him. And so after that, he walks back to the bed and he finds that Reva's not there. And at that point, he says he goes back to the toilet door and realizes the door is locked. And so he tries kicking down the door and then he eventually goes and gets a cricket bat and breaks down the door and finds Riva there and she's been shot.
1: Tim, what did the prosecution allege happen that morning and what evidence did they show to support their argument?
2: So the prosecution didn't buy Pistorius' story at all. I interviewed Andrea Johnson, who prosecuted the case, along with Harry Nell. They believed that Pistorius and Riva must have gotten into a fight and that he must have killed her in a fit of rage. They believe that he knew she was behind the bathroom door, at that door when he fired those four shots. I fired in the direction where I thought the attack was coming from. My you see, Mr. Bastouris,
3: you now, you now have to give a lot of answers. And you know why, Mr. Bastouris? It's because you, you know exactly. You fired... At Riva. These other versions of yours cannot work. You at her.
2: You did. Why are you getting emotional now? As they were building their case, they found a neighbor who had had trouble sleeping that night who said that around 2 a.m., she had heard the sounds of a woman having an argument, but the neighbor wasn't sure where the sound had been coming from. And now, again, remember the timeline. Dr. Johann Stipp, Rush over to the house around 3 a.m. And when they reviewed the crime scene evidence, they found some details that they thought were interesting that may have indicated that Reva and Oscar were having a fight. For one, Reva's bag was packed, except for a straight pair of jeans on the floor. And just the simple fact that Reva had locked herself in the bathroom and had her phone with her, they found that interesting. And then there was just the basic question of why hadn't Oscar checked on Riva before approaching the bathroom? Andrea Johnson mm. related a story to me in which there's a bump in a night and her partner's first reaction was to check on her and make sure she was safe. The prosecution also reviewed text messages between Pistorius and Riva that they had exchanged in the weeks leading up to Riva's death. And those text messages showed that Pistorius and Riva had been fighting. And as I understand it, one of the fights occurred around the end of January 2013. Oscar and Riva had attended a friend's engagement party and Pistorius got mad because he thought Riva was flirting with another man. And during that fight, mm-hmm. Riva texted Pistorius, I'm scared of you sometimes and how you snap at me and of how you will react to me. I mean, that's. Pretty remarkable, given the circumstances of what happened next. And then in February 2013, they apparently got into another fight. As I understand it, they attended an event together, and Pistorius got mad that Riva wasn't standing next to him at certain points in the night, or maybe throughout the whole night. And around that time, Riva texted Pistorius, I can't be attacked by outsiders for dating you and be attacked by you, the one person I deserve protection from. And just hearing in Riva's words how she felt in the weeks leading up to her death, I thought that was a powerful moment because you're hearing it from her herself.
1: And how did Pistorius do under cross-examination?
2: When Pistorius took the stand, the prosecution cross-examined him and interrogated him about his story and the details of his story. And there were multiple times when Pistorius broke down sobbing. The prosecution was trying to catch him in a lie and they were essentially forcing him to confront what he had done. I think I was, my lady. I've made a terrible mistake. and You, you, uh, you made a mistake? That's correct. You killed lady. a person. That's what you did, isn't it? I made a mistake, my lady. You killed Riva Stienkamp. That's what you did. I made a mistake, my lady. You, you're repeating it three times. What was your mistake? My mistake is that I took Riva's life, my lady. You killed her. You shot and killed her will did you take responsibility for that? He was definitely rattled by the questioning, but he mostly stuck to his version of events.
1: Margie Orford, you're an author, filmmaker, and a women's rights activist who has campaigned in South Africa as a patron for rape crisis. What was it like to watch Oscar Pistorius during that trial? The general
3: feeling in response to that murder was absolute outrage. There was a kind of split in that there was a massive and orchestrated publicity campaign by the Pistorius camp, if I can call it that, with tweets and interviews and shame, poor Oscar Pistorius, he's lost everything. You know, there was that sort of tenor. And as I remember it, it absolutely riled people because that's so often the way in which femicidal men are portrayed as this poor guy who just snapped and he was doing his best and now he's lost everything, and the woman whose life has been taken from him, he becomes the victim. So he's the victim. He becomes the victim, and it, it you know it's part of the narrative trope that was swirling around that oh maybe she'd been talking to some just nonsense. Somehow women always must be the cause of their own deaths, and I remember at the time a lot of people just called time on that. Margie, the killing of women at the
1: hands of their male partners, this act of femicide, is all too common worldwide. What did that look like in South Africa at the time?
3: I came back to live in South Africa in 2001. I'd been in Namibia for 10 years and then in New York. And when I first came back here, what struck me, it like a kind of blow to the stomach, really, was how all of us, all women, manage fear and caution against violence all the time. Every single move that you make, every time you cross the road, I'm really not a paranoid or anxious person, but it was just kind of working around that. And it's got the highest recorded rape rates in the world and very, very, very high levels of femicide. It's sort of an epidemic proportions. So, many of the rape survivors I've worked with had been raped not just once, but several times in their lives. So, it's in a way like an everyday part of life, but it's a trauma that shapes a woman's life completely. And there was already by then a great deal of awareness campaigns. You know, so many little girls are murdered, adult women too. But these are murders that happen just about daily. And it's to do with this. Very, very much a cultures, extremely patriarchal ideas of hierarchy and obedience. And you know, this is a country which we had slavery, then colonialism, then apartheid. There was a tremendous amount of displacement of racist animus from the kind of struggle years, which I think of as a sort of undeclared civil war. So the legacies, a violent response to what is ever seen as some kind of infraction against male authority, and particularly white male authority, is just the norm. It's not normal, but it's the norm.
1: Can you remember the clarifying moments from watching this trial in which it was clear that there were signs of a troubled relationship, potentially domestic abuse or coercive control?
3: Coercive control, I think, is a very useful term and frame for thinking of that relationship. And interestingly, it was not a phrase widely used out of specialist circles 10 years ago. There were reports, as I remember it, of series of messages from Riva to friends and family members, which seemed to indicate kind of tactfully that Pastorius was very possessive. They had not been involved very long. Three months is how long they'd sort of been dating or knowing each other. It's such a brief amount of time, but it feels like the relationship escalated in such an intense fashion. Which is classic symptoms of a coercively controlling relationship. You very quickly get the woman to move in, make her part of your life, all of those sorts of things.
1: Margie, Oscar Pistorius' trial also shone a light on the racial politics of South Africa 20 years after the fall of apartheid. Can you tell me more about what it revealed?
3: So when I first saw the reports of the murder and then Pistorius' defense, he had said that he shot because he thought there was an intruder in the bathroom. Now That immediately conjures a very old and atavistic white South African thing about the black intruder. The rhetoric and discourse under apartheid was beware of the swartgefahr, the black danger. It was a kind of shimmerer that is evoked so quickly and easily as a defense for any extremity of violence. This is what white people would have been thinking. That's supposedly what the army and police were protecting white people against. It's rubbish. And that was his defense. Oscar Pistorius lived in this very, very secure upmarket complex. And it's a gated community. Many wealthy South Africans live in them. And the armed security guards will be there within seconds because they're based on the territory. And in that estate where he lived, there had never been even a burglary. So there'd been no armed robberies, no invasions, no murders, nothing. There was no crime. So someone was going to be dead, and he knew that. So either who was going to be lying behind that bathroom or was Rivas Sienkamp, his girlfriend, or this imaginary black man. So either it was a murder driven by misogyny, shooting at his girlfriend because she's gone into the bathroom and locked herself in because she's afraid, or it's a racist murder shooting with the intent to kill this imagined person behind your bathroom door. Mr. Pistorius, please stand up. Having regard to the totality of this evidence in this matter the unanimous decision of this court is the following on count 1 murder read with section 511 of the criminal law amendment act 105 of 1997 the accused is found not guilty and is discharged instead he is found guilty Of culpable homicide.
0: On count two.
1: Tim, Judge Thokazile Masipa initially cleared Pistorius of murder, but found him guilty of a lesser crime of culpable homicide. What did she say and why?
2: Judge Masipa found that there was no hard evidence that Pistorius and Riva had fought that evening. She mentioned the neighbor who had heard the sound of a woman potentially having an argument around 2 a.m. and said there was. No hard evidence connecting that to Pistorius and Riva. Judge Masipa said that Pistorius had acted negligently, but she ruled that he had not intended to kill Riva. And so from that, we can infer that Judge Masipa apparently bought Pistorius' version of events. So Judge Masipa convicts Pistorius of culpable homicide, which is basically manslaughter, a lesser charge than murder. And people across South Africa were angry. They were upset. A lot of people viewed this case as a case of gender-based violence, and they were hoping that maybe this would be a chance for South Africa to take that issue seriously.
0: Like, they should set an example with Oscar. So it shows that being famous and having money will make your life more easier. I do not understand. I think the charge is very, very lenient on that guy. Because that guy has killed an innocent lady cold-bloodedly. So I think at least the state should appeal that 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 uh, murder acquitted.
1: Well, many people would be surprised that this was a murder trial not decided by a jury. Why was that the case?
2: In South Africa, trials by jury were banned sometime around the late 60s, I believe. And murder trials like this are heard by a single judge. And one of the reasons is that people were afraid of jury members who might have racial prejudices. You know, Obviously, race is a big issue in South Africa. It's a complex issue due to the decades and decades of apartheid. So you can imagine the type of issues that would arise if you had a jury trial and there was some sort of racial prejudice involved in deciding someone's fate.
1: Campaigners and lawyers challenged the initial verdict and appealed it all the way up to the Supreme Court. What was the court's final ruling?
2: In South Africa, the prosecution has the right to appeal a decision. It's not just a defendant. And in this case, the prosecution appealed, and the case went before a panel of judges at the Supreme Court of Appeal in South Africa. And they, upon hearing the case, overturned Judge Masipa's decision, and they convicted Pistorius of murder. And what it came down to in the appeal court's ruling, they used a legal term called dolus eventualis, And in layman's terms, they decided that Pistorius must have known when he fired those four shots that whoever was behind the door was going to die, that he should have foreseen the consequences of his actions. It didn't matter whether he knew the identity of the person behind the door. It didn't matter if he thought it was a burglar or if he in fact knew it was Riva. He shot four shots through the door and should have foreseen that he was going to kill whoever was on the other side of the door. And so, based on that line of thinking, Pistorius was convicted of murder and sentenced to 15 years in prison, minus time served.
1: Coming up, Oscar Pistorius walks free. What will his life look like now? Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier.
0: and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash today in focus today to get ten percent off your first month. That's betterhelphelp.com slash today in focus.
1: Tim, while Pistorius was in jail, Riva's family were invited to take part in the Restorative Justice Program. What did that mean for the steam camps?
2: In South Africa, they have what is called the Restorative Justice Program. And it's my understanding that it was something that was set up after apartheid ended as a way to help the country heal. And the general idea behind restorative justice is to bring together both sides of a conflict the offenders, the victims family members, even people from the community and to open up a dialogue between the two sides so people can take responsibility, maybe get some closure and ultimately ensure that whatever happened doesn't happen again. And so as part of this restorative justice program, while he was in prison, Pistorius and the STEAM Camps both had the chance to participate in something called the victim offender dialogue. And as part of that program, Pistorius met with Barry Camp. Riva's father in June 2022. And sometime after that meeting, Barry gave an interview and he said that he had confronted Pistorius during the meeting, accusing Pistorius of shooting Riva deliberately. But according to the report, Barry said that Pistorius stuck to his story and repeated that he thought there was an intruder and that he had shot Riva by mistake.
3: It was shortened by me stating that we aren't getting the answers that we
2: want, and we'll leave it at that. And that we leave to Oscar. Now, only Oscar knows the true story. In the interview Barry gave, all he wanted was for Pistorius to, quote, admit he did it in anger. Barry added, quote, but I was wasting my time. He is a murderer. He should remain in jail.
3: My psychologist told me that I, she didn't think it was in my best interest to go, but then I wrote a letter for Oscar, which a person was there to read what I wrote to him.
2: I found it powerful in that victim statement that June Steenkamp wrote. You know, she spent some time talking about Reva, the pain of losing Reva so young, and all the things that Reva didn't get to do. Reva had talked about potentially practicing law after her modeling career ended, and things like Reva didn't get the chance to start a family.
3: But we really, truly. Am- You know, we just love her so much and miss her. So part of our life is gone and we'll see her one day. But that's what we
1: look forward to. Barry Steenkamp died in September last year, before the decision over Pistorius' release was made.
2: The parole placement for Mr Oscar Pistorius has been confirmed, effectively from the 5th of January 2024.
1: And Tim, what the did the parole board decide, and what are the conditions of his release?
2: In South Africa, you're eligible for parole after serving half of your sentence. And so his case went before a parole board. And as part of that, June Steenkamp, Riva's mother, had the chance to make a statement that was read to the court. And in that statement, I found it interesting that, like Barry, she said she did not believe Pistorius's story about thinking there was a burglar in the toilet. And she also said, quote, At this time, I am not convinced that Oscar has been rehabilitated. She said that she had hoped that his rehabilitation would include therapy, quote, to deal with his temper and abusive behavior towards women. There's been lots of reports around the conditions of his parole. He's going to have to live under until his sentence expires in 2029. According to reports, Pistorius is going to have to report to a monitoring official On a regular basis, he's going to have to tell this person, for example, whenever he moves homes or changes jobs. Also, part of the conditions, he's not going to be allowed to consume alcohol or other prohibited substances. He's not going to be allowed to do media interviews. And he's going to be expected to be at home at certain hours of the day. And beyond that, Pistorius is also reportedly going to be required to attend programs on gender-based violence and anger management.
1: Margie, what impact do you think this case has had on South Africa in terms of domestic abuse, violence, and the awareness of that against women?
3: Well, sadly, the cases of domestic violence have not gone down. The cases of femicide have also not gone down. I think what it did do, though, I think it really took apart the idea that you can walk through this world in a neutral body. How you get killed, how you get attacked, is absolutely embodied. And of course the coverage
1: is different depending on that body.
3: Coverage is different very often the bodies that form a a sort of familiar trope it's usually a beautiful young white woman's murder or disappearance will catch a great deal of media attention. What has changed though is that this claim to an impulse That which was so important about the murder charge as opposed to culpable homicide is saying, yes, this man was to blame for not thinking, for not pausing, for not restraining himself. That has shifted. And the idea of any kind of mitigating circumstance has been put paid to. I mean, tragically, there have been so many murders of women since then, of well-known women, obscure women women with nothing, women with a lot, but how masculinity is dealt with is shifting. I mean, there's some very interesting initiatives in South Africa around dealing with violent men in prisons and therapy. I mean, there's not enough. There's an organization called the Sesonke Justice Movement, which is men working with young boys and various things on helping them find ways other than just violence. Because violence is a language. It has a grammar, it has a logic, it's a deeply meaningful act, as is a speech act. So I think that the idea that it's impulsive and it's outside of language, I do think her murder and the people who have campaigned around DM Dienkamp's memory have made sure that we couldn't slip back into that sort of discourse.
1: Margie, how does it feel for you now to see Oscar Pistorius being released?
3: It feels awful. It feels awful. And I think he should have stayed in prison at least till the end of his sentence. The thought of this man who snuffed out the life of this gifted young woman, gifted, compassionate family connected person, and for then this man to be free ten years later to go on with his life. it really feels like a body blow. I think what one feels, especially how I felt it as a woman, is a it's an old anti-apartheid struggle phrase which was an injury to one is an injury to all it could as easily be me or you or one of our friends whether we love our sisters our daughters because the murder of those women is nothing to do with them it's these men who feel the need to inflict or script their rage onto a woman's body so yes he will be released he will be fine and she's gone
1: margie thank you so much for your time Thank you. That was journalist and podcast host Tim Rowan and author and activist Margie Orford. I would recommend listening to Tim's series False Idol, which is about the Pistorius case, and you can find that wherever you get your podcasts. That's all for today. I'm Nasheen Iqbal, and this episode was produced by Courtney Youssef and George McDonough. Sound design is by Adam Bransbury. The executive producer was Elizabeth Cassin. We'll be back again tomorrow.
0: This is The Guardian.
3: So, you've got an idea for a business. The store of your dreams. There's just one thing to figure out, everything. That's why Shopify's all-in-one commerce platform makes it easy to sell online, in-person, and everywhere else. Sell on social media,